the Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Another five-minute mystery. An anniversary party is going on at the Brown household around the corner. One of the guests, George Taylor, pauses while eating his dessert. Mmm, best lemon pie I've ever tasted, Mary. Oh, really? I wish my wife could do as well. Hey, it doesn't look as if Sam is appreciating it much, though. Goodness, dear, is my cooking that bad? Sam, your head is practically in your plate. I guess he's fallen asleep, everyone. I'm so sorry. (laughs) That's all right. Sam, Sam, sit up. Sam, it's dreadful. I'd better shake him. Sam, Sam! Great guns, he's dead. How do you do? I'm Sergeant Barker of the Homicide Division, and this is one of my boys, Mike Grady. Where's the body? In the dining room at the table. We didn't move him. Hmm. Might as well be comfortable, everybody. This will take just a little while. Hmm. Dead, all right. Peaceful, too. Who's Mrs. Sam Brown? I am. You mind telling me what happened? I guess not. I'm so shocked. I don't know where to begin or what to tell you. Well, you might as well begin by telling me what you serve for dinner. Well, uh, we had soup first. Soup? What kind? 
mushroom, and then roast chicken, green peas, mashed potatoes, and I served him coffee. But I don't see how this could mean anything. Just routine, Mrs. Brown. Did Mr. Brown eat everything? Yes, yes, he did. He seemed to fall asleep over his coffee. Mm Mm-hmm. And when I tried to wake him, I found he's had a heart attack. Yeah, that'll be all for a few minutes, Mrs. Brown. We want to take a look around. Uh, notice anything about this table, Mike? No, Chief. Can't say as I do. Neither do I. Let's look in this kitchen. An orderly person, isn't she? Stacked dishes after each course. Yes, and here's the silverware over here. Ah, look. Look, Chief. One of these soup spoons has turned black. Black? Let me see it. The only spoon that's tarnished, too. Well, I was beginning to think it was a heart attack or the perfect murder. But this silver soup spoon is evidence enough. Uh, Mrs. Brown? Yes, Sergeant Barker? I'm sorry to interrupt your little party, Mrs. Brown, but I'm sure your guests won't mind. Uh, I don't understand. You will, Mrs. Brown, you will. You see, you're under arrest for the murder of your husband. Do you know why Sergeant Barker accused Mrs. Brown of murder? In a moment, we'll hear the solution. And now, back to our story. Sergeant Barker, how do you know it was homicide? Well, Mrs. Brown took careful pains to wash the soup pans and soup dishes before she served the rest of the meal. Yeah, I can see that. But she forgot one thing, to wash the silver soup spoons. What she didn't realize was that an hour later, by the end of dinner, the spoon her husband had used to eat his toadstool soup would give her away. She didn't know that toadstools make silver turn black. Mrs. Brown almost committed the perfect murder. But she forgot to wash one spoon. This five-minute mystery featured the voices of Sean Cantwell, Rhonda Groves Young, Randy Zimmerman, and yours truly, Tom Sumner. We hope you've enjoyed this mini-mystery. The Tom Sumner Program.com
Hey, welcome back everybody. We uh, shift gears this hour and uh, talk about race. Most kids of color grow up talking about racism. They have, quote, the talk with their families uh, about survival in a racist world. But white kids don't. They're barely spoken to about race at all, and that needs to change. So says uh, New York Times best-selling author and the author of a new book called The Other Talk, Reckoning with Our White Privilege by Brendan Kiley, who joins me by phone. Hi, Brendan. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, Brendan, let's let's talk about this um, because you're absolutely right. White kids don't get a talk about racism or or how to behave um, unless uh, the subject of race comes up and basically all we ever hear is don't be a racist and so people run around thinking well I'm not a racist that's a lot different than being anti-racist right right no I appreciate that you know so many of my friends of color and uh, as you mentioned uh, in the intro uh, grow up having the talk and um, I think many people are, you know, whether you're a, a, a person who's indigenous or you're, um, you grew up in a black family or you grew up in a, in a, in a family um, of, of any other uh, cultural background from the global majority, I think you're, you're, you're familiar with that. But so, too, I think are, are, are folks who grew up in white families, they're familiar with the talk in that context, but they recognize that they don't have the same kind of talk when they're growing up. Now, for me, for example... I, I grew up in a family, I'm a, I'm a white man, I grew up in a family that, um, that spoke about racism, and we spoke about, just as you're saying, you know, you shouldn't be a racist, but never did we really speak about what it meant for me to grow up as a white person. In other words, never did I ever have a talk about how my racial identity impacts my life and impacts the lives of others around them. And as someone who's a, a father now, someone who uh, was an educator for 10 years, um, I know that young people uh, and, and young white people in particular are, are eager to have this conversation. They want to know because they want to learn more so they can do more to help participate in making a more racially just world. Um, Brendan, and you talk about the, the, the subtitle of the book is Reckoning with Our White Privilege. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, they hear the phrase white privilege, and, and a lot of white people are not doing very well economically and uh, having a tough time hanging on to their homes. And, and I know there are people out there who hear that phrase and say, what white privilege? I, I don't feel particularly privileged. And so what do we mean when we say and we use that phrase white privilege? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that question, Tom, because, uh, to be honest, I, I struggle with that word, too. It um, implies, like, like born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Yep, and, yep. And that's not necessarily the case, and yet still it exists. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a tricky word, and, and honestly, I use it in the book because it's, it's kind of <laughs> common parlance of our times, you know. And, well, and, it's part of the lexicon. And, Exactly, and I and I and I, uh, and I and I use it so that people understand where where I'm going in the book. However, I agree with you. Um, 
that, that people, you know, trip over that word, especially people who are who are struggling and having hard times. It's like but, Wall but, Street guys who say the economy is doing well, and I feel like saying not in my neighborhood. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I understand that very well. And, I, and you know, for me, I, I think it's, uh, I, I, um, I appreciate the poet and scholar Claudia Rankin, who uh, chooses to use a different phrase, which may also be a little uncomfortable, but I, I, I want to give it some context here. She, she, too, says, you know, she doesn't want to use the phrase white privilege, but she does maybe want to call it white living, or, in other words, what it means to live as a white person in our country. And that does actually bear some, um, some exploration, because what we mean when we're talking about white privilege is that though we may not support this, that we may not want this, that we might not have done anything to create this, those of us who are white still walk around with advantages all the time that many folks of color don't share. I'll give you a for instance. Um, I, uh, I, I co-wrote a novel with a friend of mine. Um, it's called All American Boys. Um, he's black, I'm white. Um, we were going into a bank in Washington, D.C., and, and um, uh, my friend who's black was there to do uh, his business. And... Um, the, the bank teller said, oh, for the transaction that you're going to do, um, we need to go get the bank manager to approve this. Now, uh, she went to the back uh, office, got the bank manager, who was a white man like me. He walked out into the lobby of the bank. He walked right past my friend and, sh- and stuck his, uh, shook his, uh, his hand out for me to, sh- to shake it and said, um, how can I help you, sir? Th- that's what I mean. It's, it's those kinds of interactions that happen in an interpersonal way end up creating a, a system of advantage for, for white folks like me. That's also true in a much broader sense. We can talk about it in a systemic level. My grandfather fought in World War II. Um, he, uh, when he returned home, uh, thankfully, um, he was able to take advantage of the GI Bill. Now, my grandfather grew up in an Irish immigrant household. They struggled. They worked very hard. And no knock on that hard work. He was also able to take advantage of the benefits of the GI Bill in a way that many of his fellow soldiers who were black and other people of the global majority were not able to take advantage of. That creates a system of advantage for people like me two generations later that, again, my friend Jason, whose father was also a veteran, um, did not, uh, was, was not able to take advantage of in the same way. That's what we mean when we talk about privilege. It's I know it's an uncomfortable word, but I, I appreciate you giving me the time to talk about that because I think it's good to put that in context. Well, yeah, exactly, because, um, you know, some people would look at that phrase and say, well, you know, I, I'm not guilty of, of having any special privileges because I'm white, when in fact, you know, we probably do. Yeah, I, I you know, I... I I, I also trip over the word guilty, <laughs> because, again, I think, you know, many people want to think about what they personally have done, when, in fact, it's not necessarily what we personally have done, but rather it's that we're, we live in a society that is burdened with the legacy of these um, uh, racial injustices that go back quite some time. It's, it's history living in our present. Um, and yet, if we're more aware of it, and this is why I wanted to write this book, if we're more aware of it, then we can do more to help combat some of that racial injustice. We can do more to participate with the people who have been working for so long 
to undo some of that racial injustice. More about the other talk with uh, author Brendan Kiley straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know. 
a place where you never get harmed. A magical place with magical charms. Indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More about the other talk with uh, author Brendan Kiley straight ahead. Um, does, does it help to acknowledge that white privilege did not begin with the 13 original colonies and slavery? Well, it, uh, on some level, I, I think it's important to recognize that um, our, our, our history does inform uh, the kind of white privilege that we have today. Um, it's certainly true that we can talk about the legacy of, uh, of slavery. It's certainly true that we can talk about what it meant for um, displacement of indigenous folks. Um, that, that's been well documented, and scholars have talked about this quite a bit. Um, I, think it's, I think it's okay to talk about that openly and honestly and to, and to talk about the legacy that that leaves. And in the meantime, we can talk about how it's not only that moment, right? Look at Reconstruction after the Civil War. Um, we've we've been we've been grappling with trying to correct the injustices of our past for a long time, and we still have a long road to go. But I think it's important to acknowledge how entrenched the concept is to understand how it became systemic. Obviously, yes. white privilege means something uh, different today than it might have in, uh, you know, Europe before, uh, you know, the, sure. the beginning of the colonies here. Um, but, you know, it's it's important to acknowledge that there's a reason why that's treated as somehow the standard, the norm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, I can only speak from the perspective of somebody who's, uh, grown up in America and um, and someone who's um, who's studying the history in America, and so I'm I'm speaking specifically about our history here. Um, and it, you know, it's important to recognize that yeah, of course, there's a difference between codifying law um, at the you know the outset of our of our country that uh, you know demarcated uh, enslaved people as three fifths of a human being. That's very different than the example I used at the bank. But I think it's important to recognize that they are connected um, uh, in the historical context and, and, uh, and how that historical context links today. Um, for me, again, what I want to do in the book is I want to um, help provide a language for uh, young white people in particular, but families who are white, um, educators who are white, um, to reflect on their own racial identity. It's something that we're not used to doing as white people. And yet, I, I will say, I've had the great fortune to travel um, to schools all across the country, whether that's in Anchorage, Alaska, or Orlando, Florida, or Portland, Maine, or Sacramento, California, and many, many, many points in between, where I hear young people say time and time again, um, you, you know, I want to learn more so that I can do more. I'll, I'll give you an example. There was an article um, in the Washington Post earlier this summer that was speaking about um, uh, actually a community in Michigan, um, Traverse City, and um, some of the um, uh, you know community discussion about 
how to teach racism in schools and, and whether or not to talk about white privilege. And there was a, a, young, uh, a young girl, a young white girl, who had just finished her, her year in second grade. And um, uh, she was asked about, about all this, and she said, you know, it was really hard for me to hear about and learn about racism as I have this past year. But it made me want to learn more so that I could do more. That's a second grader, a second grade white girl in uh, Traverse City, Michigan, whose spirit I want to honor with, um, with empowering her with that language here in the other talk. You know, I get the impression, I've, I've always had the impression that young people don't start out racist, that it's something, right. it's, it's a learned behavior from, you know, systemic things and, and you know, uh, family attitudes and habits and so on. And, and, and I wonder, and I want to get to this idea of the other talk, the title of your book, uh, yeah. Brendan, um, Reckoning with our white privilege. Um, aren't kids already a little farther ahead than their parents on this subject? Well, number one, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> that's I how mean, I would put it, Brendan. <laughs> well I hope stated. so. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I hope to learn as much as I can from my son. <laughs> and uh, I... I, I um, I think so. I think that, um, at least in my experience as a as a high school teacher, I taught tenth grade English for for years in in New York City. Um, I do think young folks are are better equipped than I certainly was, and yet it's also incumbent upon us, who are adults who care about young people, to engage with them um, to help provide them with the tools and the language so that they can speak about this with uh, greater fluency than than I certainly did. And so, therefore, I think it's important for us to engage, however risky, however scary, however uncomfortable it might be to have this other talk uh, with the younger generation, so that they can feel empowered. It's not, this, again, this is not about feeling guilty. This is not about feeling bad. This is not about saying this is all my fault. It's, that's, those are distractions. Having the other talk is, is a way to empower uh, young white kids to... Um, be involved in, participate in conversations of racial justice with people of color who have been having these conversations for so long. One of the reasons that people are aware of the talk that black parents have to have with their children about how to behave during a traffic stop and so on are these horrible news reports we've seen um, of interactions between the police and and primarily young black males um you know which sort of exploded with the killing of uh um george floyd yeah last summer and and I, i i'm i'm leading up to saying are those the times in the wake of those headlines that are opportune to begin having the talk for white parents with their kids about uh, about what they're seeing and and what their role is in in making things different um i i have to say i i've i've talked to quite a few people uh, <laughs> so far about this book and nobody has asked 
that question in that way, and I, I can't tell you how much I, I appreciate it, because um, while I recognize the gravity of those moments and why they often become the catalyst for, um, I, I mentioned in the book, uh, a friend of mine who's a, who's a black man, who's a father of two black sons, it, it is in fact the, 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 the horror of what happened to George Floyd that, um, that required him to begin to have the talk with his two sons. And, and but as that, horrible wh- as an event like that is, Aren't we somewhat obligated to make it a teachable moment? Absolutely, and that's what I was going to say. Is that and, and and likewise for those of us who are white, I think it's incumbent upon us to also at that moment um, have a similar kind of talk. I mean, what I would share with my son, um, who if if he was the same age as as my friend's two sons, I you know I, I would begin to have a similar kind of conversation by sharing stories of my own interactions with law enforcement. And how so often they've ended up uh, quite differently. Um, not blaming the police for any way that they've treated me. In fact, I've been treated with nothing but compassion and pity and dignity. And the question would be, why aren't, don't all people deserve that same kind of treatment? Um, and, and uh, you know, I have law enforcement in my family, so this is not knocking law enforcement. It's, again, within the larger context. So absolutely we are obligated to have uh, to... to to recognize the teachable moment in those horrific moments. Um, and I would argue that we can begin the other talk even sooner, because I think it's important for us to, um, to think about whatever the age-appropriate content it is for the age of our child, but starting quite young, um, to begin to have these conversations about, uh, about our racial identity as white people in a way that, again, can help our young people recognize those moments for what they are, not only see the horror of what happens to an individual, but recognize how it's connected to a larger systemic problem and ask themselves, what can I do to help dismantle this? What are the things that parents have to know and accept before they can lead such a talk? That's a great question. (laughs) I think it's really important for us to recognize, A, that we're not experts, (laughs) And I don't think we should be expected to be. But what we maybe can try to embrace is um, the courage of honesty. And I, I think by reflecting on our own lives in the way that I share anecdotes in the book, I share anecdotes about um, experiences I've had in high school, experiences I had playing basketball, experiences I've had traveling the country, experiences I had going into college, experiences I had while as a student in college. If we reflect on the moments of our own lives, and begin to um, try to share those moments with our young folks in an honest way, grappling with our own racial identity, I think that's the, um, the, the real basis for having the other talk with our kids. Yes, it's also important to try to do as, as much studying as you can. I think, it's, um, I think it's important for us to read widely and to try to read as, as often as possible uh, books that are written by folks of color, um, and black people in particular, indigenous people in particular, but all folks of color, um, because we want to inundate ourselves with consciousness that is not a part of our, <laughs> our, our growing up experience. But also, I- at the end of the day, we're, we're not going to be experts. So it's important for us to recognize that we're going to make mistakes and to not be afraid to show those mistakes to our young folks so that they can learn from us and do better than we have. You know, I've... I've 
told this story. I don't know if I've told this story on the air, but I've told it to some friends over the years about my parents when I was a young boy and I was in a Cub Scout den. My mother was a den mother. And there was a black kid in my class at school that I invited to become part of the pack. Yeah. And my parents sat me down to try to explain in in one of the most awkward conversations I ever had with my parents about why I shouldn't be racist, but it wasn't appropriate for him to be part of the pack. Wow. Um, that that perhaps he would be happier in a, a pack of, of young black kids in his neighborhood. Right. And it was... And it was really unusual for my parents to fall on the weird side of an issue <laughs> or a talk like that. Yeah. But it was it was very telling to me in a lifelong kind of way. You can't just say don't be racist. Right. You have to be willing to act on it. That's right. That's right. And I and I And people weren't. I mean this was early sixties and you know, things have, I, I, I like to think that awareness has evolved significantly since then, if not I, actual behavior. I, I think so, too. I, I think uh, one of the cornerstones of being involved in this kind of dialogue and conversation and work is to have hope. I mean, look at all the work that has been done before us. I think it's in I, I, I really think it's our responsibility to have hope because of all the work that people have done before us and to try to get us to, to have a more racially just world. So I really appreciate what you're, what you're saying there. And I appreciate your story because I think it's, I, you know, obviously everything is, is connected to the context. And so, you know, you have to have all the other pieces of the context to, to know more about it. But, but I appreciate the honesty. And I, and I think that, I think that's okay. I think that's part of having real honest conversations with our white kids not not just saying as you've said don't be racist not hiding behind uh, well hopefully somebody else will explain this to you more but engaging with them and saying i might not know everything but i know that in order for us to to try to participate and to try to act in a way that is anti-racist as you said earlier then we have to be we have to have the language to talk about what racism even looks like we have to have the language to talk about why white folks have advantages in these ways that even if they don't want them, they're still granted time and time and time again. If we have the language for it, we can, bin, we can begin to dismantle it, I think. Well, and, and one can certainly hope that that's the case. My guest is uh, a New York Times best-selling uh, former high school English teacher, <laughs> uh, Brendan Kiley, who's the author of a new book, um, and, and an important book, I think, called The Other Talk, Reckoning with Our White Privilege. And it's um, get, hopefully in the process of, of considering having The Other Talk, uh, white parents to white children, that they would... Um, try to explore and understand how there are some things that uh, that are racist but not intentionally so and i i remember yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know throwing back to the to the 60s um 
when I was a kid, it was not unusual for someone to say, oh, I'm, I'm not racist. Uh, you know, some of my best friends are colored. Right, right. And, of course, that was the term of the day. And, and people meant it so well-intentioning, and yet that is not the way it felt to black people. Right. I, I think you're making a great point. And, I, I, and we still have those things today. Exactly. Exactly. I, 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 I feel <laughs> I can I can think of a handful of moments right now. I, I bring up some in the book where, you know, I, I had the best of intentions, but I, I I didn't know what I didn't know, and that's why having this talk as often as possible, I can begin to chip away at the ignorance that I don't want to have. Um, you know, I, I I would like to try to do the best I can. I want to provide my son with the with the most opportunity he can to engage in these conversations and in real community action in a meaningful way. But if I don't try to get involved and, and recognize that I'm gonna make some mistakes along the way and say the wrong thing, then I'm too then I'm too afraid to even begin and we'll never get anywhere. I really appreciate what you're saying because I think um, we still do that today. People I know many people around me, uh, white people around me who are constantly afraid of, oh, the language is changing so quickly, I never know if I'm allowed to say this or not anymore, etc. And it's not really about it being allowed to say. It's about, hey, if someone's going to correct you, like, I don't have to be defensive. The least I can do is just change my language. <laughs> you know, we, we um, I, I remember how many times I heard people talk about how, um, well-spoken and and groomed Barack Obama was. Uh-huh. And, you know, and, and I had to agree. I was a huge fan of his speeches. And then at the same time, I had to remind myself, and I still remind myself, that people who don't wear a suit and tie and, you know, didn't go to Harvard. <laughs> right are still worthy of respect and dignity and all those other things. And, and we have to make sure that that's, that that's part of it. Um, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying right now. Here I am on the air with you, and I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go to a private college. <laughs> I went to a state school, right? Here I am talking to you, and I'm not on screen, but I'm not wearing a suit and a tie, and yet I've been given the opportunity to speak with you on air today. And I... And I and I think about how, as a white man, I, I can do that more easily than many of my friends of color who would be expected to wear that suit in the same, in the same way that you're just talking about. I, I, this is exactly what I was talking about before when I was talking about I've been grateful for my interactions with law enforcement in my life because I have been treated with dignity. And, um, and I don't dismiss that, and, I, and I, I'm grateful for it. And I wish that kind of uh, interaction with authority figures for all people um, in the same way. You don't have to wear a suit and a tie to be recognized as a human being. Um, and, I, uh, and I think it's incumbent upon us to include exactly what you're talking about um, in the kind of conversations that I, as a, as a white parent, would have with my white son or, um, or, or anyone would be having in this other talk. And, and again, the name of the book is uh, The Other Talk, and let me let me get the uh, the subtitle in here right. Reckoning with our white privilege, 
and it's um, written by Brendan Kiley. Brendan, um, we're going to run out of time here in a couple of minutes, and I feel like we could we could have this conversation all day. It's it's one that's near and dear to my heart, and and I applaud you for the book. What made you think to write this book, and what's next for Brendan? <laughs> Thanks. I um I I, I have to say I, I mentioned earlier that I was traveling the country quite a bit with a, a friend of mine. Um, his name is Jason Reynolds. He's also um, uh, an author, and uh, we co-wrote a novel together. And as I mentioned before, he's black and I'm white, and we were traveling together in uh, in 2014, and it was. Um, shortly after the um, the verdict of uh, of the Trayvon Martin case, and um, Jason's mother, a black woman from South Carolina, uh, called him um, to to basically say to him, uh, you know, son, uh, you're traveling the country. I'm I'm really I'm really scared for you. I'm scared for your life. I'm scared that um, there might be a George Zimmerman out there for you. And and my mother didn't call me. She was not concerned in the same way, and she wouldn't be. And it's, it's that kind of recognition and the kind of recognition that Jason shared with me about the kinds of talks he had growing up that made me think, well, I didn't have those talks. I should have had those other talks. I'd like to try to write a book to, to try to provide um, some kind of starting point for those of us who grew up in white families to have this other talk and reckon with our racial identity in the same way that so many of my friends of color have had to their whole lives. And, and what's up next? <laughs> well, I primarily write books for young people because I, I, you know, come from an education background, and, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on two books right now. One for even younger readers, and it's a, a, a story about a, a fishing village, and another story that I'm working on that I hope can um, inform people uh, about uh, our climate and, and why it's changing. Brendan, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Absolutely. It's www.brendankiley.com. And that's Kiley, K-I-E-L-Y. That's correct. Thank you. Um, Brendan, thanks so much for spending this time and, and sharing your thoughts uh, with me and the listeners this morning and in your book. Thank you. I really appreciate you, appreciate you having me on. Thanks a lot, Tom. Take care. You're well. That was Brendan Kiley. He's a uh, former high school English teacher and uh, now New York Times bestselling author. His new book is called The Other Talk, Reckoning with Our White Privilege. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program.
While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, 
Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
the telephone Any way that she could get in touch with me Tell me she wasn't coming home Looking out my window I'm looking way down on the streets
Listening to Tom Sumner. 